Yeah, so um, I've actually very much enjoyed giving these talks as well. Um, uh, the overall title is Adventures in the Pure Land, and they have been a bit of an adventure for me too, going through these themes. Um, and as Osman has said, uh, we started off with happiness, because Sukhavati is the land of utmost happiness. Sukha, as we heard, means happiness. And uh, in that, we looked at the 12 levels of happiness. Um, and Sukhavati being symbolizing the upper levels of that happiness. Three main levels of happiness uh, are worldly happiness, then unworldly happiness, and then still greater unworldly happiness, which is the transcendental happiness. Uh, and Sukhavati really represents that third level of happiness. Then after that, uh, we, we explored beauty, didn't we? Beauty, because uh, Sukhavati is also a land of utmost beauty, and we looked at beauty and its um, significance in the spiritual life, really. Uh, last week was naturalness. And to, basically what I was saying was there's the mythic history, what's called, what I call the mythic history of Sukhavati, which you get in the second of the Sukhavati view Sutras, the longer of the two. Um, where the Buddha tells Ananda all about how Sukhavati came about. This is kind of mythic history of it. And uh, I told you that history, and then I posed the question, what does all this mean, really? What does it mean to us? And um, in order to uh, pull that meaning out, I went back to a sutta, one of my favourite of the Buddha's teachings, a sutta called the Chaitanya Sutta. Um, which is one of those suttas which um, lay out the path uh, in terms of mental states as well as practices. So the first stage of that path is sila, or virtue, ethical practice, which leads to freedom from remorse. So if you perfect your um, ethical practice, it leads to freedom from remorse. So as we might call it, a clear conscience. And that clear conscience then leads to a feeling of joy. And that joy leads to a greater joy, uh, rapture or ecstasy. And then that calms down into serenity, which becomes a deeper happiness, sukha. And that deeper happiness allows us to become absorbed, samadhi, meditative absorption, the whole of our being comes together. And then from samadhi, that leads us into knowing and seeing things as they really are. So, as we might say, insight into the nature of reality, which leads to disenchantment. So you're no longer enchanted by things of the world, you're disenchanted from worldly life which leads to dispassion and which eventually leads to knowledge or knowing and seeing liberation or full awakening. So that's the Chaitanya Sutra and I, I, I quickly talked about that but then there was something that I really wanted to look at, wasn't there, those of you who were here last week. How many were not here last week? So I do need to go into it a bit, don't I? So the reason I talked about the Chaitanya Sutta was not so much because of those stages, interesting though they are, as what the Buddha says about each one as he goes through them. So if we, take, we go to the first stage, um, he says, 
For a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. So in other words, if you are virtuous, if, you're, if you practice ethics, then you don't need to then try to get to the next stage of a clear conscience. It arises naturally on, on, as a result of you practicing ethics. So you put effort into practicing ethics and the next stage happens of its own accord. There's no need to try to make it happen. And the, the phrase here is, in, it's in the nature of things that the next stage arises independence on the first one. It's in the nature of things is a translation of a word dhammatar. Sometimes dhammatar is translated as natural. So it's natural that it happens. So the reason I went into all that is because um, I was trying to uh, see what the purpose of the mythic history of Sukhavati was, what it actually meant. And what I was saying was the mythic history of Sukhavati is a mythical way of saying that the spiritual life is natural. It happens naturally. If you put effort into it, it happens to you, as it were. There's a, what I called a, a kind of dynamic of skillful effort followed by involuntary positive effect. Involuntary positive effect. Your skillfulness becomes something else without you having to try and make it into something else. So that was the main thing that I spoke about last week. And I looked especially at eight, stages seven and eight so if I'll read those out for you now. For a person endowed with absorption or samadhi, there is no need for an act of will. May knowing and seeing things as they really are arise in me. It is in the nature of things that knowing and seeing things as they are arises in a person endowed with absorption. So with these two stages, from absorption to knowing and seeing things as they really are, we move, this is a great big crucial step, isn't there? We move from what's sometimes called the mundane path to the transcendental path. You begin now to really see things as they really are. And uh, this is the crucial stage of insight. And if it's strong enough insight, you cannot fall back from the path. Up until then, up and right up until absorption, you can... Stop practicing and fall right back to where you started. Uh, but from here, once you reach the stage of irreversibility, you cannot fall back from the path. So it's, that's a crucial stage. But there's something else there. Not only can you not fall back, you cannot help but move forwards. You can't help it. Once you become, in, in early Buddhism, there's this, the stage is called stream entry. So you enter in the stream, which takes you to um, enlightenment. So uh, traditionally it's said that within seven lifetimes now you will become enlightened. Within seven lifetimes. Whether, you, whether or not you believe in lifetimes is another matter. But what the, the principle, the significance of that is that you cannot now help it. You will become enlightened. So this, is, this stage isn't just a stage of not falling back. It's a stage of not being able to stop 
now moving forwards. You can put the brakes on as much as you want to, but you will eventually gain enlightenment. Some people do it in a lifetime, don't they? And then others do it over seven lives. So you can make it slow, but it's definitely going to happen. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? You reach a stage where you cannot help but move forward in your spiritual life. It becomes effortless, as it were. It's in the nature of things, dhammata, it's natural. So the mythic history of Sukhavati symbolises that. If you weren't here last week, you won't be able to put those two things together. But in order to explain that, I'd have to give that talk over again. And I don't want to give that talk all over again. And those people who were here last week don't want to hear it all over again. So you just have to take my word for it. So Sukhavati is a symbol of the path. Specifically, it's a symbol of the path from seeing, knowing and seeing things as they are to knowing and seeing liberation. So it's the last few stages of that path. That's what Sukhavati really represents. The Pure Land really represents that. So that's last week. This week is trust. Faith in Buddhism, Shraddha or Prasada, uh, is faith in the naturalness of the path. It's faith in that, um, that sequence or that uh, dynamic of skillful effort being followed by involuntary positive effect. That's basically what um, faith is in. Each stage of the path unfolds naturally from the previous stage. Faith in the fact that skillful effort results in positive effect. You could call that faith in the path. But then the other aspect of faith is that it's faith in the fact that at a certain point on that path, another dimension arises. The transcendental, as we sometimes call it, knowing and seeing things as they really are from which you cannot fall back. So you could say that that is faith in the goal. So you've got faith in the path and faith in the goal. Um, So those of you who are familiar with Bhante's teaching, Sangharakshita's teachings, will know he's spoken about the the niyamas, the five niyamas. I'm not going to go into the the five of them, but two of them are important. One is the karma niyama, and the karma niyama is the law of conditionality, which is to do with your ethical behaviour. Um, and you could say that the karma niyama is at work up until the stage of absorption. And then from knowing and seeing things as they really are, this is according to Bante, another um, order of conditionality arises, which he calls the dharma niyama. And the difference between the two is that karma niyama goes both ways. You can go up and you can go down. And the karma niyama is, only, is unidirectional. The dharma niyama only goes one way. You cannot fall back once you reach the dharma niyama. So, let's go to the shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. So the Buddha's talking to Shariputra and he says... Shariputra, the progress of those living beings who are born in the Buddha field of the Tathagata Amitayas as pure bodhisattvas will be irreversible and they will only experience one more birth. That is to say, one more birth before they're fully enlightened. 
So that's why I say that uh, Sukhavati is a symbol of the Dharma Niyama order of conditionality because you only get there, you only get to be reborn there once you become irreversible from enlightenment. So in that shorter sutra, what happens is um, the Buddha first of all tells Shariputra about Sukhavati. It's a long, 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 long way in the West. And uh, it's called Sukhavati because it's a place of utmost happiness. And there, a Buddha called Amitaya, or Amitabha, lives. Amita, meaning limitless, boundless. Um, Amitayus, meaning limitless life, boundless life. And Amitabha, meaning limitless light. So you could say time and space, limited, limitless time and space. Um, so he tells him and then describes um, Sukhavati, not in a great deal of detail, but he does describe Sukhavati. That's the first half of the sutra. And then he says this, living beings, Shariputra, should cultivate a heartfelt desire for that Buddha field. Living beings should cultivate a heartfelt desire for that Buddha field. So heartfelt desire is David Welsh's translation of pranidhana. Um, So it's a very strong word. It's very strongly volitional. Heartfelt desire, you could say very strong faith. So if you want to be reborn in Sukhavati, if you want to get to the place of irreversibility, you need a very strong faith, heartfelt faith. He goes on to say that living beings with only a few roots of virtue will not be born in that Buddha field. So if you've only got a few roots of virtue, you won't be born there. So as well as that strong desire, you need to practice ethics. So roots of virtue is a translation of kusala mula. So kusala, I expect you know the word kusala. We usually translate as skillful, don't we? Kusala is the skillful. Mula is is, uh, root So we need to practice ethics if we want to be born there too. He then says, if a son or daughter, I'm really glad he's put both there because so often in Buddhist texts, uh, the Buddha says, if a son of good family, la-di-ba-di-blah, but here it's both. If a son or daughter of good family hears the name of the blessed one, the Tathagata Amitayas, and if their minds become absorbed by it for one night, two nights, three nights, four nights, five nights, six nights, seven nights, if their minds become undistractedly absorbed by it, then when they die, the Tathagata Amitayas, surrounded by his Sangha, his community of Shravakas. Shravakas are listeners, disciples. Shravakas, and accompanied by his assembly of Bodhisattvas, will appear before them, and they will die with an undistorted mind. When they die, they will be born in the Buddha field of the Tathagata Amitayas, in the world system of Sukhavati. That's an important paragraph, that. So um, I think, first of all, we need to uh, look at the literal meaning of it because I think it's meant to be taken literally. 
I think that's what the author really means. The author really is talking about death, the death of the physical body. So, if a son or daughter of good family hears the name of the Blessed One, the Tathagata Amitayas, and if their minds become absorbed by it, and later he says, undistractedly absorbed by it, for one night, two nights, etc., seven nights. It's really interesting that, isn't it? Nights. I've often wondered why nights, why not days? In fact, I'm reading from the Sanskrit version of the sutra. There's a Chinese version as well, which says days, days. But the Sanskrit says nights. And um, I've often wondered why it says that, why nights? And it reminds me of the story of Pingya. I expect many of you know of Pingya. He is so popular in our movement. Pingya was uh, an old man, Brahmin. Um, his teacher was a Brahmin called Bhavari. And Bhavari wanted to meet the Buddha, but he was too old. He couldn't do it. So he sent 16 of his disciples. Funny enough, Pingya is a very old man as well. I don't quite know how that works. Maybe Pingya is a bit younger than Bhavari. Anyway, these 16 um, Brahmins went in search of the Buddha and they went a long, long way to see the Buddha. They really searched for a long time. They eventually found him. And they were so pleased to see him. And um, the, the whole, this whole story is, you'll find in the final chapter, chapter 5, the Parayana, of the Sutanipata. Parayana means the way to the beyond. So you get this story, and then they finally meet the Buddha. And the, all 16 of them ask the Buddha at least one question. Sometimes they ask a question with a follow-up. So the text is really questions and answers. Pingi is the last one to speak. Pingi asks a couple of questions, which I'm not going to tell you what they were. We, we don't really need to know right now, because after that, there's an epilogue. And in the epilogue, Pingya must have gone back to Bhavari. It doesn't say, but suddenly the epilogue is Pingya is now talking to Bhavari. And he's saying how brilliant it was to meet the Buddha, what a fantastic guy he is, and how devoted he is to him. So Bhavari says, But if he means so much to you, why don't you spend all your, why have you come back? Why aren't you still with him? Why don't you spend all your time with him? So Pingya's reply, many of you will know this, this reply, but I'll I'll read it to you anyway. He says, I cannot stay away from him even for a moment. I see him with my mind as if with my eye. I pass the night revering him. For that reason, I think there is no staying away from him. My faith and joy, mind and mindfulness, do not go away from the teaching of Gotama. In whatever direction the one of great wisdom goes, in that very direction I bow down. I am old and of feeble strength. For that reason, my body does not go away to there, where the Buddha is. But I go constantly on a mental journey. For my mind, Brahmin, is joined to him. My mind is joined to him. That is such a brilliant text, isn't it? I really love that text. But the reason I'm reading all that out, apart from its wonderfulness, is the fact that he says, I pass the night revering him. He doesn't say the day, he says the night. So there's this interesting um, element here of the night time. So again, why nights? 
Why did you say nights? I don't actually know, but, you know, I've been thinking about it for quite a long time, so I've got a few ideas. Perhaps the night represents, well, night represents rest, doesn't it? And in a way, it re- well, it represents sleep. And perhaps sleep is associated with dreams. And perhaps dreams are associated with the imagination. And, you know, you can, be, um, you can know someone for a long time, but when you dream about them, then you know that you're getting to know them better. Um, so when you start dreaming about things and people, it's beginning to percolate through the different parts of you, isn't it? From the conscious, rational mind to the less conscious, to the imagination. So the way I understand this is that um, Pingi has a conscious desire to gain enlightenment, but that conscious desire has gone deeper than simply the will, the will to gain enlightenment. It's entered into his, the deeper recesses of his being, his subconscious and his unconscious, his imagination. That's the way I understand that. Something very strange happens then. So up to this point, it seems from the text that Pingya has gone back and he's talking to Bhavari and the Buddha's not there. So they're talking away, they're having this dialogue. Suddenly the Buddha breaks in to their dialogue. Suddenly the Buddha says, just as Vakali was released through faith and Bhadra Buddha, along with Alavi Gotama, in just the same way you can be set free through faith. Didn't say that very well, did I? I've got my fuzz and my fuzz uh, muddled up. In just the same way, you can be set free through faith. You, Pingya, will go to the far shore of the realm of death. So the Buddha suddenly appears, somehow, and he speaks. And he's encouraging Pingya to continue with his path of faith. And he mentions three of his earlier disciples who have released their mind through faith. Vakali, Badravuddha, and Alavi Gotama. And he says, just as Vakali was released through faith, in just the same way you can be set free through faith. So the two terms in the Pali here are released through faith is um, muta sadho. So sadho is... Uh, comes from the word sadha or shraddha in Sanskrit, so faith. And mutta means released, set free. So you can, re- you can be set free through faith. And the second term is pamuncha-su. Pamuncha-su, sadham. Sadham again, faith. Pamuncha means loosening, setting free or setting loose. So you get this idea of faith freeing you up setting you free. The Buddha is basically telling Pingya that his faith alone is enough for him to set him free, to become awakened. His faith then is tantamount to insight. It's tantamount to that eighth stage of the path from the Chaitanya Sutta, knowing and seeing things as they are. It's quite interesting that that crucial stage, the stage of insight, the stage of irreversibility, we nearly always talk about it in cognitive terms. What you now have learned, what you now can see, what you can now know. But it doesn't have to be talked about in cognitive terms. It can be talked in terms of 
faith. So that perhaps at that stage you really don't know very much more than you knew before. But now you become irreversible in the path. You feel completely differently. One of my, um, one of the uh, ancient teachers who inspires me the most, uh, he's, he's also a great inspiration for my friend Nagapriya, who's sitting there, is Shinman, the great Japanese Pure Land Buddhist. And uh, he talked about um, uh, trying to get to a stage where you have a change of heart. So the change is not cognitive, it's a change of heart. And we all know what that phrase means, don't we? Oh, someone's had a change of heart. And you know that that means there's been something important happened. You've had a change of heart. I'm sure some of you have heard me talk about Wilfred Cantwell Smith, the person I sometimes refer to as the great Wilfred Cantwell Smith. He was a uh, Christian minister, but he was also one of the early comparative religionists. He studied other religions. And uh, he wrote this wonderful book called Faith and Belief, The Difference Between Them. Seminal Christian work, Faith and Belief, The Difference Between Them. I'm not going to go into what the difference is right now, but it's an important difference. Very important for us, but that's for another talk, for another time. But basically, the reason I'm mentioning him, because in that book, he talks about faith as having two aspects. The first aspect is insight, and the second aspect is a positive response. So faith includes those two things. When you have faith in the Dharma or faith in the Buddha, faith in the Sangha. You don't just have a feeling, an intuition. You understand something. There is a cognitive element to it. You have an insight into something. Whether you follow that insight or not is another matter. So it has to have with it a positive response. And Campbell Smith says it's the same yes to that insight. And now I'm going to try and live in the light of that insight So that's faith. Um, And uh, if you've ever um, been at beginner's classes, supported beginner's classes, uh, you probably would have seen people having little insights all over the place. Sounds quite a lot, doesn't it? Aha moments. Oh, yeah, and I've always felt that. And you've put into words what I've always kind of felt deep down. You have those wonderful moments, don't you, of insight. And then they don't come back the next week. That happens so often, doesn't it? You're having this great class, everyone's really excited, and you think, wow, we've got this fantastic class, wonderful sangha, half of them don't turn up next week, and you never see them again. Where have they gone? Where's that insight gone? Perhaps they've taken it somewhere else, and they're practicing somewhere else. Or perhaps the insight was there, but the yes was not there. Yes, I'm going to live by that insight. Maybe that wasn't there, I don't know. One of my teacher's teachers, our teacher's teachers, uh, the great, again, sometimes called the great Dilgo Kientse Rinpoche, identified four levels of faith. These are very interesting. Clear faith, longing faith, confident faith, and irreversible faith. I'll tell you what he says. He says, clear faith refers to the joy and clarity and change in our perceptions That's interesting, isn't it? Faith uh, results in a change in our perceptions. 
that we experience when we hear about the qualities of the three jewels in the lives of the Buddha and the great teachers. Longing faith is experienced when we think about the latter and are filled with a great desire to know more about their qualities and to acquire these for ourselves. Confident faith comes through practicing the Dharma. When we acquire complete confidence in the truth of the teachings and the enlightenment of the Buddha. Finally, when faith has become so much a part of ourselves that even if our lives were at risk, we would never give it up, it has become irreversible faith. So irreversible faith means that you cannot fall back from the path. Let's go back to the sutra. How are we doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Is this all right so far? If a son or daughter of good family hears the name of the Blessed One, the Tathagata Amitayas, and their minds become absorbed by it for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven nights, if their minds become undistractedly absorbed by it, then when they die, the Tathagata Amitayas, surrounded by his Sangha of Shravakas and accompanied by his assembly of Bodhisattvas, will appear before them and they will die with an undistorted mind. Just reminding you of that now. We're coming back to that now. When they die, he says, they will be born in the Buddha field of the Tathagata Amitayas in the world system of Sukhavati. So, we can see a path here in the shorter Sukhavati view her sutra. It begins with a heartfelt desire to be born there. Heartfelt desire, pranidhana. You could say longing faith. Next, roots of virtue. You need to practice ethics. Next, absorbing the mind undistractedly in the name of Amitayas. So, samadhi, absorption, meditation. Then, at the moment of death, being met by Amitayas and his sangha, and dying with an undistorted mind. So, this is... Death, but you could also say, and here we can begin to look at the whole thing metaphorically, spiritual death, insight. Birth in Sukhavati, spiritual rebirth. So this, this path, it may be ringing bells for some of you if you're familiar with the five great stages of the spiritual path. Heartfelt desire, ethics, Absorbing the mind undistractedly, that's meditation. Moan of death, so spiritual death, and then spiritual rebirth. Five stages. Not exactly the same as the five stages we're familiar with, which are uh, integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth, and spiritual receptivity. But it's similar, isn't it? So as I say, I'm sure the author of the text meant when he talked about, he or she talks about death, they meant death and then rebirth, literal death and literal rebirth. But we could see this path in metaphorical terms as well, that the death is the death of the ego, the death of the idea, the belief in an enduring fixed self. That goes. And then you're reborn. You're reborn in the path from knowing and th seeing things as they really are. You're reborn in the Dharma Niyama. So after this bit, 
Um, the Buddha then tells Shariputra about 38 other Buddhas. Actually, 37 other Buddhas, because one of the Buddhas he talks about is Amitya again. And he talks about them as all as existing in different parts of the universe. And each one has their own Buddha field. And he mentions, he names them all, 38 Buddhas, he names them all in different parts of the universe. Why does he do that? He says, Shariputra, you should have faith in me and in these other Buddhas. These other blessed ones. Trust in us, do not doubt us. So at last we come to the title of the talk. Trust. Trust in us, do not doubt us. So you may be wondering now why I've called the talk Trust. I've been talking about faith. And trust and faith are very, very similar, aren't they? Uh, I see faith as active, a bit like that pranidhana, that kind of heartfelt desire. It's a desire and it's an action. Whereas I see trust as more receptive. So when the Buddha was talking earlier about needing that heartfelt desire, I think he meant active. But now when he's talking about the Buddhas, he says, trust in us, you must trust in us. Trust and faith, very closely linked. Years and years ago, um, I was on a seminar with my teacher, Bhante Sangrakshita with the order members, and we, were, we had been talking earlier in the day when he, well, he, we would study all day and then he would answer questions in the evening on this text. So we were talking about faith and uh, how do we cultivate more faith? How do we get more faithful? How do we do that? So we asked him in the evening, Bante, how do we cultivate more faith? And his, surpri- his um, answer surprised us all quite a bit. He said, hmm. It's a wider issue than just faith. It's really an issue of trust. If you find that you don't have all that much faith in the three jewels, probably a good idea would be to look at how much trust you've got in the people around you. He talked about the ability to trust as being a positive mental event. And if you can trust, then that leads naturally onto faith. Now, obviously, you can't trust everybody in this world. Uh, But he talked about the difference between mistrust and distrust. I can no longer remember which one's which. But let's say uh, distrust is when someone that you know has proved to you that they are unworthy of your trust. They proved it with their actions. So it would be unwise to trust that person. So you distrust them quite reasonably. Mistrust is when You cannot trust another person, even though they're trustworthy, even though they prove to you time and time and time again that they are worthy of your trust. You are unable to trust them. So this is the mental event that Bhante was talking about. If you find that you don't have much faith in the Dharma, just look at your own sense of trust in other people. Now, talking about other people... I'm going to return once again to the sutra because when the Buddha starts talking about this heartfelt desire, he says a little bit more that I've kept back from you up to now. So I'm going to tell you what it is. Living beings, Shariputra, should cultivate a heartfelt desire for that Buddha field. Why should they do this? They should do this because in that Buddha field, 
they will be in the company of good people such as these bodhisattvas. That's the only reason he gives for desiring to be born there. He does not say, it's a brilliant place to be. You should see the lotuses. You can have whatever you want. Whenever you want food, it comes. If you want the water in the ponds to be warm, it'll be warm, etc. Not because it's a fantastic, beautiful and happy place, but because you will be in the company of good people. That seems to be important, doesn't it? That's the only reason he gives. The Sangha in in, uh, Sukhavati is Amita. Amita meaning boundless, limitless, infinite. There's an unlimited number of beings, limitless number of beings in Sukhavati. You cannot possibly count them. In the longer sutra, the Buddha goes into great detail about this, how it's not possible to count them. Why? Why does Sukhavati has a limitless Sangha? And in the longer Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra, the Buddha describes them in some detail. Why does he do that? It's an imaginative practice. Just as we're supposed to imagine the lotuses and the jewel trees and the birds quacking and tweeting the Dharma to us, we're also to imagine living with these wonderful beings. And he describes them in great detail. Why are we, we to imagine? Because it's an exercise in trust. By imagining living within the Sangha, that wonderful transcendent Sangha, you are developing trust in other people. And that's why Sangha is so important, why spiritual friendship is so important, why it's so important to us in our movement, why a gathering like this is so important. What I'm saying is not so important. What I've been saying these last three weeks is not so important. The important thing is that we have gathered together and we're here together. We could be doing almost anything skillful, Um, meditating, doing puja, having games and fun. It wouldn't really matter because the point is we are in the company of good people such as these. That's the main thing. And it's a practice. Being in this situation is a practice It's a practice in learning to trust, getting to know know other people, getting to know that they have good intentions at heart, getting to know them so that when, when they fall down on those good intentions and they let you down a bit, or we let them down, we then apologize and make amends and say, look, I'm really sorry, that was not good, that was unskillful, and I'm really going to try not to do that again. So we learn to trust. Whenever we're unskillful towards another member of the Sangha, there's a breach in trust, isn't there? And then that breach needs to be built. A, a bridge, the bridge needs to be built all over again, but it is possible to build that bridge. And bit by bit, we learn to trust in the good intentions of the people in the Sangha. It's a practice in trust, which is in turn a practice in faith. If we can trust the Sangha around us, our faith will begin to grow. Towards the end of the sutra, the Buddha gives an alternative title. So I've been referring to it as the shorter Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. The Buddha says to Ananda, there's another, you can call it something else as well. 
you should trust in this sutra called Embraced by All the Buddhas. Embraced by All the Buddhas. What does that mean? In his book, The Dawn of Chinese Pure Land Buddhism, Kenneth K. Tanaka writes this. The transcendent Buddhas and their realms that fill the universe are concretized expressions of the eternal Buddha principle, Dharma, which, as the basic reality of the universe, is ever active to lead all beings to enlightenment. In other words, the universe is the domain of the Buddhas and is thus fashioned and sustained by their work to lead beings to enlightenment. Now that I've read that, I wish I'd have put that right at the beginning and the the whole talk could have been a a commentary on that because it's so brilliant, isn't it? The transcendent Buddhas and their realms, the Buddhas that we've been talking about, of whom we are being embraced, that fill the universe are concretized expressions of the eternal Buddha principle, Dhamma, which, as the basic reality of the universe, is ever active, ever active to lead beings to enlightenment. In other words, the universe is the domain of the Buddhas and is thus fashioned and sustained by their work to lead beings to enlightenment. Whether or not you believe that, the point he's making is the Dharma is natural, it's everywhere. And in the third of the three sutras, the three Pure Land Sutras, of which I've hardly said anything so far, uh, the Buddha is teaching a woman called Vaidehi how to visualise Amitayas. But before he does so, he asks the question, why should you um, visualise Amitayas? Because Amitayas is reality. The Dharma Datu, he is the body of reality. And when you create Amitayas in your mind, your mind becomes the Buddha. When you create the Buddha in your mind, your mind becomes the Buddha. Uh, So this is a very abstract way of talking. You know, when you create the Buddha, your mind becomes the Buddha. We can understand that. Um, The word he uses when he he talks about... um, when he asks, asks that question, why should we visualize Amitayas? And his first uh, response to that is because uh, the Buddha is, uh, or any Buddha that you can imagine, is the Dharma Datu. So Dharma Datu is an interesting term. Um, David Welsh translates it as the uh, uh, totality of phenomena. But basically, Dharma Datu means something like the realm of reality. It basically means that everything is real, everything is Dharma. Everything is Dharma. So that's what the Buddha says then. But a bit later on, when he's actually describing Amitayas to Vaidehi, one of the amazing things about him is absolutely enormous. Massive. He's so big that he's bigger than the galaxy. He's bigger than our world system. He's, you know, so, you cannot, so big you cannot stand back and look at him. Because he's everywhere. He is so big, it's almost like we are living in him. We are having our being in Amitabha, Amitayas. He is the universe. The universe is Amitayas. The Dharma is natural. It's everywhere. So, to be embraced by all the Buddhas 
is to surrender to reality. It's to surrender to Ambitias, the Dharma Datu. It's just to let it happen to us. We make effort and then there's involuntary positive response. It's a matter of just letting it happen to us. When we're embraced by all the Buddhas, we cannot fall back. We can't help but move towards awakening. So we come to the end of this series of talks entitled Adventures in the Pure Land. We've explored happiness, beauty, naturalness, and this week, trust. To be born in Sukhavati is to naturally awaken into happiness and beauty. And trust is the factor that makes this awakening possible. <laughs>